Well, thanks again to Father Davenport for the invitation to contribute to this series. Um, I've been studying Aquinas for a long time now, and it's really an honor to address scholars that at an institution that, it, as I understand it, traces its history all the way back to the house of studies that Aquinas himself visited back in the day. Um, my understanding is that uh, it's partly owing to Daniel DeHaan that you've invited me to speak. And I did listen to the lecture on neo-Aristotelian and Thomistic thought about the immateriality of the human intellect that he gave a few weeks ago. I'm going to try to pick up the ball where he left it, filling in some things that he didn't touch on in detail, indicating a few possible areas of disagreement, although in general I found what he had to say tremendously illuminating. Rather than neo-Aristotelianism or Thomism more broadly, I'm going to focus today mostly just on Aquinas himself in this talk and focus mainly on two questions. What does the immateriality of the human intellect mean for Aquinas? And why should we suppose that the human intellect is immaterial? Toward the end, I'll have just a few things to say about a third question, namely why it matters that the human intellect is immaterial. But here is roughly how this is going to go. First, I'm going to talk about the target. Aquinas has all of these arguments aimed at showing that the human intellect is immaterial, immaterial. But what really are these arguments supposed to show? What burden of proof is he trying to lift with these arguments? Second, I'm quickly going to mention a few varieties of arguments he offers and indicate the particular sort that I'm going to focus on, although I'd be happy to talk about the others in the Q&A if you'd like. I'm going to call the kind that I'm focusing on the mode argument. Third, I'll talk about one common way of interpreting this argument that, as I see it, won't work. As I recall, Daniel's perspective is that the way most recent Thomists put this argument forward is a flop. And I agree with him about this, and I'll explain why. Where I may disagree with Daniel, however, is that this argument needs to be retooled in some radical way in order to succeed. As I understand him, Daniel thinks Thomists need to pretty much give up on Aquinas' arguments themselves, except perhaps in their broadest outlines, and instead focus on articulating contemporary neo-Aristotelian arguments that are perhaps of a kindred spirit with Aquinas's, but aren't actually his arguments. I'm going to argue, though, that there is a way of understanding one of his arguments, the mode argument, that actually stands a decent chance of success. So in my fourth section, I'll put this version of the argument forward and offer a few textual reasons for thinking that it may well represent an accurate interpretation of Thomas's thinking. I'll be interested in hearing what all my fellow Thomists in the audience think about these reasons. 
In my fifth section, I'll try to defend this version of the mode argument, considering a few objections, including a couple that Daniel brought up in his talk. As I understand it, you'll be hearing Antonio Ramos Diaz presenting a further objection in a few weeks. I have thoughts about it, but I don't think I'll have time to share them here, so you'll just have to form your own conclusions after listening to him. Lastly, with whatever time I have left, I'll point out a couple of reasons why what Thomas thinks about the immateriality of the intellect matters. One of them is controversial. The other is pretty sketchy, but represents a current research interest of mine that I'd love to get your thoughts and suggestions on. So, section one, the target. The human intellect, as Aquinas sees it, is a power flowing, as all our powers do, from the human soul, not identical to it, but rather one of its propria or necessary accidents. It is a power for carrying out the rational operations of apprehension, judgment, and reasoning itself, which involve the grasp of being in a universal or general way and have as their proper objects the quiddities of material beings, though they're capable in a limited way of attaining to the grasp of immaterial essences as well. The distinct but intertwined power of will is also a rational power, but of rational desire rather than cognition. Aquinas's arguments for the intellect's immateriality concern cognition primarily, but I take it their conclusions are meant to establish the immateriality of rational powers as such, including the will. And what I say about intellectual powers and operations in what follows extend to the will also. All this is old hat for everyone listening, I assume. So I will pass to a passage from Aquinas's sentences commentary. I'm not going to read this out, but here are a few things I want to note in it. The question is whether the human soul is corrupted with the corruption of the body. And Aquinas is arguing with Aristotle against the position of the ancient naturalists that the human soul isn't corrupted at death. The naturalists thought that all the soul's operations, including those of the intellect, depend on the body in the way the senses do. Aristotle, however, showed that the intellect has an absolute act of being, not depending on the body, and so isn't the act of a body, nor, as Avicenna and Proclus respectively put it, is a form submerged in matter or supported by the body. All this is because no bodily organ shares in the intellect's operations, which, Aquinas says, can be shown in three ways. Now, the three ways are the arguments I want to focus on here, but let's first get clear on their conclusion. What does it mean to say that no bodily organ shares 
in intellectual operations, as opposed to those of the senses, or indeed any others we possess. Well, it cannot mean, surely, that intellectual operations don't co-vary or correlate in predictable ways with physiological goings-on in bodily organs like the brain. Aquinas knew good and well that doing certain things to the brain, like soaking it with alcohol, would predictably co-vary with certain intellectual operations, or rather the lack thereof. Here, rather, is what I think Aquinas meant by saying that the intellect is immaterial. The senses and all other powers depend on the body insofar as they simply are the forms responsible for configuring bodily parts and states and processes in such ways that they are able to interact with our environment and one another so as to contribute one or more vital function to our lives. The power of vision, for instance, is the form or formal cause responsible for configuring the eye and relevant parts of the brain such that when presented with certain environmental input, colors, Aquinas would say, they react in certain ways, causing further activities in powers like appetite and locomotion, such that we, in turn, the organisms, respond to our environments in various life-sustaining or engendering ways. The bodily parts, states, and processes that our visual power is responsible for configuring are the material causes of visual operations. Environmental input is their efficient cause, vision being a passive power, and upstream operations of appetite and locomotion, and also intellect and will, at least in humans, are their final causes. Explaining vision, accordingly, appeals to all four Aristotelian causes including bodily parts, states, and processes. Aquinas's claim about the intellect, as I understand it, is that intellectual operations cannot be explained this way. Whatever physiological goings-on in the brain may co-vary or correspond with my intellectual operations are not their material causes, and indeed, nothing about the brain explains these operations in the way Aquinas thought it did for the senses, especially the inner senses like fantasia and the cogitative slash estimative power. And that, I take it, is what Aquinas's three arguments are primarily meant to show. Here's how this conclusion fits in the overall reasoning from the sentences commentary passage we're looking at. Aquinas wants to show that human souls are ontologically independent from human bodies and hence can exist apart from the body, contrary to what the ancient naturalists supposed. To show this, 
he tries to show that it has an operation ontologically independent from the body, intellectual operations. And to demonstrate the ontological independence of intellectual operations from the body, he argues that they can't be explained in terms of bodily states, parts, and processes in the way that all our other vital activities can be. Overall, his reasoning appears to me to be as follows. Call this Aquinas's argument for the separability of human souls. One, a psychological power depends ontologically on the body if and only if its operations can be explained in terms of coordinated bodily parts, states, and processes. Two, intellectual operations can't be explained this way. So, three, intellectual operations aren't ontologically dependent on the body. But if human souls, the subject of intellectual operations, can operate independently of the body, then they are able to exist independently of the body. Hence, human souls can exist in a separated state. I'll talk more about the biconditional SS1 in section 5 later on. For now, the three arguments at the end of the sentences commentary passage are meant to establish SS2. I'll transition now to section two and say a little more about them. So section two, the arguments. Daniel labeled these three arguments the omnia, universalia, and reflexio arguments with good reason. Here they are highlighted in the passage we were looking at previously. The first focuses on the fact that the intellect can cognize all, omnia, material quiddities. The second on the fact that it can cognize universals. And the third on the fact that it can understand or reflect on itself. Here's my quick take on the first and third of these arguments. The first argument, based on the intellect's infinite scope, which is Aquinas's way of developing reasoning from Aristotle's De Anima 3-4, is, as far as I can tell, a dud. I think an, an article of Caleb Coho's in Phronesis develops it about as well as can be done, but I still don't think the result is anything that should compel an ancient naturalist, much less a contemporary physicalist, to change their views about the human intellect or the intellectual soul. Again, I'd be happy to say more about why in the Q&A. The reflexivity argument which Aquinas ties primarily to Avicenna and Proclus, might work. It's certainly intriguing in its possible connections to contemporary thought on the reflexivity and first personal character of consciousness. However, Aquinas only uses this argument twice more in his corpus beyond the brief version that we've looked at, 
once in his commentary on the Book of Causes, and once in the Summa Contragentiles. And unfortunately, given the brevity of these presentations, I simply don't think we're in a position to defend any version of the reflexivity argument and say with confidence, this is Aquinas's argument. It may well be that there are excellent neo-Aristotelian arguments to be made that look similar to these arguments of Aquinas's. As I recall, there's an old article of John Haldane's that attempts something of the sort, but I won't attempt to make any such arguments here. So lastly, then, we come to the universalia argument. Aquinas doesn't think, of course, that there are any universals in a Platonist sense out there to be cognized, but he does think we can grasp the quiddities of individual material entities in terms of what they share in common with others of the same kind, which is to say, in a universal way or mode. Accordingly, I prefer to call this argument the mode argument. Moving to section three, then, let's look at one well-known instance of the mode argument in Aquinas's corpus before considering a way of interpreting this argument that, in my view, cannot succeed. Okay, here is perhaps the best known instance of the mode argument in Aquinas's corpus from the treatise on man in the Summa Theologiae. The question is whether the soul is composed of matter and form. And Aquinas gives two arguments that it isn't. The first aims at showing that no souls have matter since they're the forms of living bodies. But the second argument concerns human souls in particular. Again, I'm not going to read this argument out, but here is a way of reconstructing it. First, whatever is received into something else is received into it according to the mode of the recipient. Second, a given thing is cognized in the way that its form is received into a cognizer. Third, Matter is the principle of individuation of forms. Fourth, intellectual cognition grasps things in an absolute, non-individual way. So, fifth, intellectual cognition grasps things apart from matter. Furthermore, sixth, intellectual cognition receives the forms of things apart from matter, and hence, lastly, anything capable of intellectual cognition lacks matter, at least with respect to whatever part of it receives the forms by which it cognizes intellectively. Here are all of these premises and conclusions to look at. MA1 is a general axiom that Aquinas employs frequently in various contexts. MA2 is a claim about how cognition works, 
namely that it's a matter of form reception or form possession. It's surely a familiar point to all of you, but worth recalling that the way Aquinas thinks forms are received in cognition is in what he calls esse spirituale or esse intentionale, not esse naturale or esse reale. That's why my eye doesn't literally turn red when I see a red apple. I agree with my former teacher, Jula Klima, that our best way of understanding esse intentionale is in terms of information encoding and processing. Jula's helpful example is that a song is received in esse intentionale on a CD when it is encoded there in the form of tiny pits and dots encoding information. In an analogous way, colors are received in the eye insofar as patterns of retinal and neural firing encode information about them. I'd note that unlike the CD case, visual perception is a case of cognitive form reception insofar as the information processing there is able to cause further activities in powers like appetite and locomotion, such that the organisms who see things respond to their environments in various life-sustaining or life-engendering ways. Its teleology matters, and I'll return to this point later. Anyhow, moving along, MA3 looks to be a familiar Thomistic claim about the metaphysics of individuation, and MA4 is what we saw Thomas putting in the sentences commentary passage earlier in terms of cognizing universalia. The version we're looking at now from the Summa doesn't mention universals, but instead makes, I take it, a parallel claim in terms of cognizing things absolutely according to their proper formal rationes. It'll be crucial to figure out just what exactly this premise means. But for now, MA5 and 6 are sub-conclusions, moving us toward the ultimate conclusion that anything capable of intellectual cognition like human souls, lacks matter, at least with respect to whatever part of it does the intellectual cognizing, namely the intellect itself. So what does it mean to cognize universals slash cognize things in their natures absolutely? Well, at least it means cognizing the material quiddities that are the proper objects of the intellect in terms of the intrinsic features they share in common with one another without cognizing the extrinsic features they owe to their designated matter that differentiate them from one another. As I understand him, Aquinas is a sort of trope nominalist for whom nothing outside the soul is common or universal. But he's a peculiar sort of trope nominalist 
for whom natures are only derivatively distinct from one another, their individuation depending on their designated matter, whereas intrinsically they are no different one from another. So to cognize a trout universally would be at least a matter of selectively attending to their shared intrinsic features while leaving out other features such as their size or the particular dappling pattern of their spots that flows from their designated matter and that differentiates them one from another. In that sense, to cognize them universally is to cognize them immaterially, as MA5 says, because it leaves their designated matter out of the picture, as it were. The trouble, however, comes in explaining how this claim, which is about what intellectual cognition represents, what it is about, that licenses Aquinas's conclusion in MA7, which is about the intellectual soul ontologically speaking. Robert Pasnow, Joseph Novak, and others think Aquinas is just committing an obvious blunder here, shifting from what our thoughts are about to how our thoughts are ontologically speaking. This is the dreaded content fallacy. And I have to say, it seems to me that most efforts at articulating the mode argument by contemporary Thomists fail to avoid this fallacy. I fear that my much esteemed former teacher, Jula, is a case in point. Here's a quote from one of his articles. If the external senses receive distinctive singular information about the individuating spatio-temporal conditions of their objects, precisely on account of receiving the causal impact of these objects through their own spatio-temporal features, then this seems to establish the implication that the materiality of a cognitive power entails the singularity of its cognitive act. For if sensory representation is singular precisely because it represents its object in a material fashion, encoding the distinctive singular information about the object by its own material features, then this means that sensory representation is singular because it is material i.e., its materiality implies its singularity. Sense cognition, unlike intellectual cognition, is singular, not universal. It includes the spatio-temporal information owing to a thing's designated matter that intellectual cognition leaves out. And Jules' thought is, that because sense cognition encodes this information by means of corresponding spatio-temporal features of its own, namely patterns of neural firing or, or what have you, any cognition, 
that operates by means of such material features is going to include this information. That is, it will be singular and not universal. My question that I have put to Jula many times is why? It may be perfectly true that sense cognition includes the information it does in part because it operates by means of the material features that it does. But why should it be the case that any cognition operating by means of such features must include this information? I've never gotten a good answer to this question from Jula. So I'll tell you what I think we need. Returning to MA4 and MA6, I've said that these premises ought to be understood at least in terms of selective attention, leaving out from our intellectual cognition the individuating features owing to designated matter. But if that is all Aquinas meant by these premises, then it seems like he is indeed guilty of an illicit shift from the representational features of cognition to his ontological conclusion. What we need then is a different way of understanding these premises. So section four, the mode argument, second try. Here's my suggestion. When Aquinas cites the intellect's ability to cognize things in their natures absolutely, or to cognize universals as a reason for thinking it is immateriality, I think he has in mind not just the ability to attend selectively to certain features while leaving out others, but rather also the ability to cognize things as members of determinate kinds at all. Yes, intellectual operations are universal in the sense we've just been discussing, but also, importantly, they're about this kind of thing or that kind of thing, trout or oak trees, in a determinate way, as opposed to a vague, indeterminate way where they could be about this, but also could be about that or the other thing. What I want to suggest is that Thomas thinks any cognitive operations that could be explained in terms of bodily states, parts, and processes are necessarily indeterminate in just this way. They could be about X's or Y's, and hence, in a sense, aren't really about either of them. If I'm right, then we need to understand the mode argument differently from what we saw in the previous section. When Aquinas says matter is the principle of individuation of forms, he means in part that matter is a principle of ontological indeterminacy. It isn't a determinate kind of anything. Whereas when he says that intellectual cognition grasps things in an absolute non-individual way, he means again that it is determinate, 
It is a cognition of this or that or the other thing. The grasping and receiving of forms apart from matter in MA5 and MA6 are accordingly also claims about the determinate way the intellect cognizes things as members of kinds. And the conclusion is that because it cognizes this way, it is immaterial in the sense I discussed in section one. It can't be explained in bodily terms. So two questions. First, why suppose that Aquinas meant anything like this by the mode argument? Second, even if he did, does it succeed as an argument? I'll discuss the first of these questions in the rest of this section and turn to the second in the next section. I will readily admit that I am reading a lot into what Aquinas says in the passage from the Summa that we've been looking at. But given the brevity of his presentation there and elsewhere, any effort to understand him is going to require a fair amount of reading in so here are a couple of things in support of my version. First, Aquinas does think that matter in itself is indeterminate, ontologically speaking, and seems to think that cognitive operations explicit, explicable in bodily terms inherit this indeterminacy from their matter, rendering them incapable of intentional determinacy. I'm getting this idea from texts in which Aquinas positions Aristotle's view between those of the pre-Socratic naturalists like Democritus and Plato on the other hand. As I read these texts, Aquinas agrees with Plato and the pre-Socratics alike that bodies are in flux and indeterminate as far as their matter is concerned. On the other hand, he rejects the pre-Socratic view that there is no certitude about the truth of things, and he agrees with Plato that the way to avoid pre-Socratic skepticism has to do with the stability imparted to the sensible world by forms or natures. He disagrees with Plato, though, that these entities exist in some separate realm, agreeing instead with Aristotle that it is the immaterial, non-bodily mode in which the intellect receives them that makes its cognition non-fluxy and determinate. I'm not going to read any of these passages just now, but question 84 Article 1 in the Treatise on Man is a good example, and there are various others. A second line of support for my reading, I think, comes from passages suggesting that for Aquinas, non-human animal cognition, which can be explained in bodily terms, is indeterminate. Non-humans cognize, Aquinas says, quote, not for the sake of cognition itself, but because of the need to act, that is, to avoid what is harmful to them 
and seek those things that are necessary for the body's sustenance. Truth and falsehood, Aquinas says, aren't in the senses, properly speaking. And elsewhere, he tells us that non-humans don't have beliefs that can be true or false, properly speaking. Consider this passage from his De Anima commentary, which discusses the cogitative and estimative powers. I won't read it, but as I see it, the main claim here is that the non-human estimative power, because it isn't united to an intellect in the same subject, doesn't apprehend individuals existing under common natures, but rather only as the goal or principle of some action or passion. Sheep don't cognize things as members of determinate kinds. Lamb, grass, wolf, etc. But rather, they cognize as a series of imperatives. Suckle, feed, escape, and so forth. Accordingly, their cognitive acts are vague and indeterminate. The sheep sees something and eats it. What visual operation did it undergo? Seeing grass? Seeing a leafy green vegetable? Seeing sheep food? Seeing hoa pretensis, the Kentucky bluegrass? Seeing Festuca arundicania, the tall fescue? It really doesn't matter from the standpoint of the sheep's survival. And so I think the right answer is none of these in particular. But from our standpoint as cognizers, whose aim is knowing the truth, it very much does matter. And that's why we have intellectual powers. Unlike sense operations, however, which Aquinas thinks can be understood in terms of information being received in bodily parts, states, and processes, so as to make possible this or that vital operation, Thomas doesn't think acts of intellect can be explained this way. And that's why he thinks they're immaterial. So, Section 5. Does the second try succeed? Okay, let's pretend for a minute that I'm right, and Aquinas's mode argument really does operate along something like the lines I've suggested. Does it work as an argument? I'll say three things in its defense. First, by my lights, the most plausible naturalistic account of how it is that we manage to cognize things as members of determinate kinds is the teleosemantic approach of Fred Dretzky, Ruth Millikan, Karen Neander, and others that appeals ultimately to natural selection. But I also find pretty convincing Jerry Fodor's criticism of this approach, which he calls the disjunction problem. Here's Fodor, quote, Darwin doesn't care 
how you manage to describe the intentional objects of frog snaps. All that matters for selection is how many flies the frog manages to ingest in consequence of its snapping. And this number comes out exactly the same whether one describes the function of snap guidance mechanisms with respect to a world that is populated with frogs that are de facto ambient black dots, or with respect to a world that is populated by ambient black dots that are de facto flies. To me, Fodor here sounds much like Aquinas in the passage we just looked at on the cogitative-slash-estimative powers. Cognition explained ultimately in terms of an organism's success or failure, or in terms of natural selection, can only ever be vague or indeterminate. Now, Fodor, of course, is a sort of physicalist himself and has his own way of naturalizing intentionality distinct from the one that he's criticizing. My hunch, though, is that neither his nor any other is going to fare any better when it comes to explaining the determinacy of intellectual cognition. And I'll just have to leave it there for now, though obviously more could and should be said. So second, Daniel mentioned as a potential worry about arguments like Thomas's that they underestimate the cognitive abilities of non-human animals. He called this the dumb animals objection. As I pointed out, Thomas doesn't think that non-humans, strictly speaking, cognize things as members of determinate kinds, meaning that they don't have beliefs that are, strictly speaking, true or false. Are these plausible things to say? Daniel thinks not, and suggests that neo-Aristotelians are better off focusing on rational criteria like validity, denying the ability to perform modus ponens to animals as opposed to denying them beliefs. I do deny that non-humans perform modus ponens, but I'm not sure that Daniel's suggestion helps or really is necessary. Consider, it sure looks as though non-humans perform feats of reasoning, right? They're remarkable problem solvers, after all. So I take it Daniel has to say that even though non-humans successfully reason after a fashion, they're not genuinely connecting premises to conclusions in a valid way like we humans do. But this is essentially the same thing I want to say about non-human beliefs. They certainly have perceptual acts that function in their lives much as our beliefs do, but their thoughts lack the determinacy that would allow them to be genuinely true or false. I don't see why this claim any more denies non-humans a rich, clever inner life than Daniel's does. You be the judges and let me know. Third, and lastly, another worry Daniel raised is what he called the epistemology to ontology fallacy, moving illicitly from claims about what we know or don't know to claims about how things are. An example might be the following dualist argument. I'm certain of my own existence, 
but uncertain about whether I have a body, since for all I know, an evil demon could be deceiving me into thinking I have a body when I really don't. Therefore, I am not my body. That argument seems dodgy indeed to me. But is my reconstructed Thomistic argument for the separability of human souls equally dodgy when it infers from the fact that intellectual operations can't be explained in bodily terms, that they aren't ontologically dependent on the body? I don't think so. I think Aristotle and Thomas are right in thinking that explanation and causation are interlocking. To say that X can be explained in terms of Y is to say that Y is among X's causes. And likewise, to say that X cannot be explained in terms of Y is to say that Y isn't among X's causes. Or, in other words, that X doesn't depend causally on Y, however much it might be correlated with it. I can say more in defense of this linkage between explanation and ontological dependence in the Q&A if you'd like, but I'd better close. So here briefly is section six. Why does the immateriality of the human intellect matter? The immediately obvious Thomist answer is that the possibility of human souls existing post-mortem apart from the body hinges on their possession of immaterial powers capable of operating independently of the body. But why does it matter if our souls survive post-mortem? Again, an immediately obvious answer some Thomists might give is that their understanding of the communion of saints commits them doctrinally to believing in separated souls. I don't happen to share this particular understanding of the communion of saints myself, so to my mind, a less obvious but even more important reason Thomas might give for the importance of separated souls is that without them, we humans could entertain no hope of the resurrection. This is a contested point, but as I read Thomas, he doesn't think even God could bring back material entities from complete destruction. If a human were lost entirely at death, body, soul, and all, then even God couldn't restore that human to life at the resurrection. It's important, then, that we are not entirely lost at death, but that our souls survive preserving our acts of being even during the interim state when we, the humans, aren't there to possess them. Well, like I said, that's controversial, and I'd be happy to discuss it further, but here's one last reason Thomas might give why the immateriality of the human intellect is important. Recently, I've been very interested in Aquinas' views on freedom, and occasionally in discussions of freedom, we find Thomas saying things like this, quote, On the part of the body and powers annexed to the body, a human can be of such and such natural quality 
according as they are of such a complexion or disposition from an influence of whatever sort from corporeal causes. But these can't exert influence on the intellective part because it isn't the act of any body, unquote. He's responding here to an objection arguing that we don't have free will since the goals we have are set for us by nature. He appears to think that this would be true if not for the immateriality of our intellectual powers. If that's right, then immateriality matters very much for our freedom. But just exactly how is something I'm still working out. <laughs> 